Good morning, good morning. <laughs> Hymn 471. 471. Yeah, I listened to it, I heard. <laughs> I kind of thought as I left, oh, rats, I didn't leave a pitch pipe or anything. I wonder if, he'll, I wonder if they'll sing 471. <laughs> I, I heard that too. Absolvo <laughs> Tay. Hymn 471. Stanzas 1, 8, and 9. Not 470, 471. <laughs> Pastor, pastor knows what happens even when he's gone. <laughs> it did sound very good, yes. My compliments to you all. See, now if everybody sang like that, we could have a huge choir rehearsal on Tuesday nights. I mean, you just let that sit and fester for a little bit. For, we, do, we have a lot of fun, yeah. And he'd say, Bill, are you changing the hymn? <laughs> 471 stands as 1, 8, and 9. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. O sons and daughters of the King, whom heavenly hosts and glory sing. Today the grave has lost its sting. Alleluia! How blessed are they who have not seen and yet whose faith has constant been, for they eternal life shall win. Alleluia! On this most holy day of days, Beloved and jubilee and praise to God your hearts and voices raise. Alleluia. 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 That's really good for only two times. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty God, you show those in error the light of your truth so that they may return to the way of righteousness. Grant faithfulness to all who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's church that they may avoid whatever is contrary to their confession and follow all such things as are pleasing to you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, 
who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. Verse of the week is Proverbs 23, 4. Let's speak this together. Do not overwork to be rich because of your understanding. Cease. Okay, uh, yeah, short and sweet and to the point. First of all, you have a prohibitive, do not. In the Greek of the Septuagint, it's one word, may, which is, uh, just means, hey, whatever's coming next, don't do whatever that thing is. Overwork to be rich. The goal here, to be rich. What does it mean if you are rich? That you're not poor. Okay. To have more than you need. Okay, to have more than you need. What else? Yeah, I'm sure you can be rich in blessings. Although I would argue that if you're rich in blessings, it's not something you're overworking to be. And considering the fact last week was the ninth commandment, this week's the tenth commandment, it's still about coveting. So when you think of overworking and being rich, especially in terms of coveting, it's things like stuff. Yeah, wanting things that you don't need. And now here's the, the sort of disclaimer. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about money and about how being rich can be a bad thing. And the rich young ruler who Jesus says, hey, give all that you have to the poor. The, pro the prohibition is not against being rich. It doesn't say do not be rich. It says do not overwork to be rich. Don't let being rich be your ultimate goal. It's okay to be successful and to have wealth. It's not okay in that position to have wealth be your God. But your position there, if you're rich or if you're poor, if wealth is your God, meaning that you have it and you hoard it like Scrooge McDuck, or that you overwork so that you can be rich, forsaking all just for the sake of your wealth, you're really both committing the same sin, which is an idolatrous sin that puts stuff, possessions, relationships, whatever it is that you want to be rich in, above everything else, including the Lord. And we're going to come back to this overwork here in just a second. But this is the simple thing I want you to understand. Because of your understanding, prepositional phrase, I'm not going to try and diagram it. Because of your understanding, cease. Which is to say, because you understand something, stop doing this thing up here. Now, this is where this gets a little bit Silly, because this is from Proverbs. What else do you know from Proverbs about your understanding? It's another prohibitive thing. Do not do something with your own understanding. Yeah, don't lean on your own understanding. But it seems kind of silly that the, the book of Proverbs would say, don't lean on your own understandings, and then also say, hey, because of your understanding, stop doing what you're doing. So what gives, Solomon? What are you trying to say? Well, I asked that question myself because I got to thinking, something's not right about this. So I looked up and I did my own translation of it, which was actually kind of difficult because this is a hard verse. And let me tell you something really fun 
about what I found. Firstly, this beginning part here about overworking doesn't really say overworking. That's just a way to translate it so it starts making sense. The most wooden, literal translation that you can get of this passage is, if you are poor, do not attempt to compare yourself and live your life in a way that would have you seek the gain of someone who is rich. And then it says, and because you have wisdom, so in this case, understanding is not your own. It is wisdom. And from where does wisdom come? Pardon me? Knowing the Lord. Okay, knowing the Lord, yes. I'm going to just do this. Yes, be wise unto salvation. Well, and, and here's, this is why this is kind of a trick question. If you come back again, you'll learn I'm a mean pastor because I ask a lot of trick questions. <laughs> but there's always, there's always method to the madness because it helps you think. Okay? Where does wisdom come from is a trick question because wisdom isn't a thing. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is the person of Christ. So it's not so much that wisdom is from the Lord, although that is true, but it's wisdom is the Lord. That wisdom comes from above. Okay? So, because of your wisdom, or because you, a better way, because you have wisdom, which really is to say because you have Christ, because you hold to Christ, because you follow Christ and heed his word, that's where wisdom is found, then, because you have that, stop doing this. And that's sort of what St. Paul says, hey, now, listen up, friends. Uh, should we continue to live in sin and let grace abound? You know, we say, oh, well, I'm forgiven, and the Lord will forgive any of my sins, and I have grace in Jesus. All I have to do is go and ask for forgiveness. And that means I can do whatever I want, as long as when I'm done with it, I go and I ask for forgiveness. And St. Paul says, that's not what that means. That's not how grace works. Okay? So, do not overwork to be rich because of your understanding. Cease. Really, what this is to say is this, whether you're rich or poor, don't let things or don't let anything other than God be your God. And because you are in Christ and you have the wisdom that is Him, you know what is wrong. Remember when we talk about the Ten Commandments, they're really your best friend, not your enemy. Every word works in two ways. The Ten Commandments are something that's good because it tells you what's wrong and right so that you can go after the good things and flee from the evil things. And because you know this, because you have this new understanding, cease, stop trying to go after other idols, because it's not good for you. In fact, it's really bad for you, and Jesus does never want anything that's bad for you. All right, let's say this again. Do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding, cease. What is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor.
Yes. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not entice or force away our neighbor's wife, workers, and animals, or turn them against him, but urge them to stay and do their duty. What's the difference between the Ninth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment? Why don't we, like the Reformed bodies, just combine them into one and say, let's just say don't covet and call it good? What's the difference between the two? Why do we distinguish them? You, we discussed that when we did the Ninth Commandment. Now what we've got to do is remember what it is that you said about it. That's the test. <laughs> Pardon me? The Tenth is more specific. But, it's, but the Ninth was about the house. Yes, the home. Yes. Possessions, yeah, good, good, good. Remember that. Ninth Commandment's about possessions. And when you look at the explanation of the Ninth Commandment, it says things like possessions and income, the goods that your neighbor possesses. But here, it isn't, there isn't a good here. There's an ox and a donkey, a manservant, a maidservant, and a wife. Those are all living things. In this sense, it's not so much, the Tenth Commandment's not so much about possessions, but about uh, the things that your neighbor can have that aren't possessions, like the life that your neighbor lives, who your neighbor loves, what his children are like. Boy, I covet my neighbor's children because my children are really rambunctious and his behave. Oh, I wish I had good children that behaved, you know, things like that. Oh, I wish I had a wife that, uh, that looked like that guy's trophy wife. Who, boy. Uh, boy, I wish I had a, a servant that did his job or workers that did their job faithfully like that other guy, that other CEO, because mine are lazy workers. You know, the, what, some, whatever you have or whatever your neighbor has that you don't have, but not about possessions, about life and living life. If you covet your neighbor's lawnmower, that's the ninth commandment. Boy, he's got a real nice John Deere lawnmower. Real nice. I know the guy who sold it to him, too. But, uh, <laughs> but mine is just an old Toro, and it doesn't really, and his is a riding mower, and mine's not. I have to push it. I wish. Well, that's the ninth commandment, okay? But boy, boy, look at his wife. Uh, I wish mine looked like her. Now, that's, that's something else. I wish my marriage w worked the way that their marriage did. Now, that's tenth commandment. Marriage isn't a possession, it's something else, you see? So it's kind of a relational coveting. So, fear and love God, so that you don't entice or force away. Well, what commandment is that? Enticing or forcing away. Let me ask it this way. What manifest sin does covetousness in the heart always lead to? Uh, not, sort of, not quite. Well, stealing, yes. If you covet something, that's the sin of the heart. And the sin of the heart leads to the manifest. I covet this book. And the coveting will fester and fester and fester until I steal the book. Okay? So don't entice or force away. Now, the sixth commandment certainly comes into play there if it's the wife, too. Or the husband. Okay? Um, then uh, workers and animals, or turn them against him. What commandment is that? Turning them against him. Well, that's the eighth commandment. False witness. Uh, speaking unkindly. 
creating discontent and hatred. But urge them to stay and do their duty. Which commandment is that? The fourth commandment, honor your authorities. No, be happy with where you are in your station and in your vocation. I will be happy in my station and in my vocation with all of the things that the Lord has given me. I will be happy with my life and with my place in life. I will not covet your life or your place in life, and I will not covet the things that you have in your life, and neither will you covet the things I have in mine. And in fact, not only will I not covet those things, but I will help you so that whether your life, in my opinion, is better than mine, whether your relations are better than mine, I will help you to make sure that you get to keep what you have because the, God, the Lord has seen fit to give you what you have and the life that you live, and he has also seen fit to give me the life that I have and the life that I live. And what I have, this goes for both, of the, both the ninth and the tenth, what I have is given by God and therefore is sufficient for me. Whether the grass is greener on the other side is really inconsequential. It's not even a question you have to ask. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it doesn't really matter because your grass is the kind of green grass that you are given. And that person's grass is the kind of green grass that they are given. And our task is to rejoice and to be thankful with all that the Lord has seen fit to, to provide us with. Yes? Somebody told me once that all those commandments fall back on the first commandment. Every commandment falls back on the first commandment. You know who said that? I think it maybe was Jesus. Oh, I don't know who told you personally. Did you have a dream? Did Jesus tell you that way? I think it was in Sunday morning Bible class about a few months ago. Oh, maybe. <laughs> well, see, if that's what you're hinting at, I'm not any help to you because I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. <laughs> so, yes, okay, very good. Any questions about the catechism? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's not wrong to wish that your neighbor had something better, but it is wrong to wish that he gets something better at your game. <laughs> okay, children, away. What did you say? I said children, rousement do, outward Okay. I'm, you're going to have to write this stuff down. Yes, good. Okay. Before we jump in here, is there any... Do you have any questions about what you talked about last week? Or about this particular study that I have not answered yet. We're kind of, yes, sir. We get, uh, got right down to the end there last week and we talked about uh, uh, Jesus saying, I have other flocks that I must tend to. Yes. Other sheep, other sheep of, that are not of this fold yes. and them I must seek out as well. Uh, what does Jesus mean when he says there are other sheep that are not of this flock? 
I have other sheep. Um, who is salvation for? Everyone. Uh, who are the people that follow Jesus around? And who are the people that he talks to most of the time? The people who believe in him. Yes, but what nationality of person are, are they? Not Christians, no. Jews, they're Jews. The Jews follow him. He preaches to the Jews. He preaches against the Pharisees and the scribes. A Gentile doesn't care about Pharisees and scribes. So this is about the Jews. Matthew's gospel is written as a gospel that is sort of a catechism, the first catechism, uh, <clears throat> written f with the Jews in mind. He writes to the Jews. So there's this idea that we're going to go to the synagogues and we're going to preach Jesus in the synagogues. You read that in Acts. They go to the synagogues. Um, but then, the Gentiles as well. The Syrophoenician woman is a really good example. Uh, she follows Jesus, or the Canaanite woman, rather. She follows Jesus, and she says, Lord, heal my daughter, for she is severely demon-possessed. And the disciples say, what? Send her away. She's making a loud noise. She's shrieking after us, is what they say. She's shrieking, oh, she's just making so much noise. Jesus, send her away and maybe she'll shut up. She's drawing attention to us. We're trying to go. She's annoying us. And then she calls to Jesus again. What does Jesus say to her? It is not good to give the children's bread to the little dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And he says, yes, great is your faith. Now look at that. That's a perfect example of another sheep that is not of this fold. This fold being specifically the Jews. St. Paul writes salvation is to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Salvation is for all. It's not just for these Jews. Bring, think, consider too Abraham. Um, what does St. John the Baptizer say to the scribes and lawyers and Pharisees when they say, well, we are children of Abraham? He rebukes them, and he says, surely God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, which is to say, so what? <laughs> In the vernacular, big whoop. Hey, we're children of Abraham, guy. Big whoop. Who gives a rat's behind about that? Can you trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham? Who cares? It doesn't matter. That's not the thing that matters. What it means to be a child of Abraham is not by lineage, but by covenant. Anyone who is someone who is, believes in that covenant is someone who is a child of Abraham. It's about blood, but not the blood of Abraham. It's about blood of the promise, the blood of Christ. Okay, so, uh, even the people who are not the children of Abraham are part of this covenant. They are not of this fold, but they are still the Lord's flock. They are still the Lord's sheep. Um, take, take as another reference the vision that St. Peter has before he meets up with Cornelius, the Gentile, uh, about the sheep that comes down from heaven and it has unclean animals in it and the Lord says, eat. And he says, oh, I can't eat that. I've never eaten an, I've never eaten an unclean thing in my life. And the Lord says, well, you're gonna now. 
because you don't get to call unclean what I am telling you is clean. I am the one that determines what is clean. I am the one who determines what is unclean. That's important because it ties into the fall in the garden. Who's the one that determines the fruit is good to the eyes and pleasing? No. Who is the one that determines that the fruit is pleasing to the eye and good to eat? Yeah, Eve, Adam and Eve. It's, that's the exact opposite of God. God is the one who says, don't eat it. And they say, hmm, but it looks really good. And you see the switch in Genesis when it goes from them saying, the Lord has said to, we see that it is good. We see. The Lord can blow as much hot air as he wants because I see and I determine that that thing is good. Think about Saul. This is just fresh in my memory because we talked about it in midweek a few weeks ago. Saul, do you remember why Saul is not allowed to be the king of Israel anymore? He is supposed to go and attack an enemy of the Israelites and bring about the Lord's retribution for when they attacked Israel as Israel was trying to get out of Egypt. And, well, he did, but he didn't follow all the instructions. The Lord said, kill every living thing. Men, women, children, animals. Nothing should be left alive. And then it says, Saul said, yes, sir. And then he went in and saved the king and then saved the choice animals. Remember that? Who's the one that decides what the good animals are, what the best animals are? Saul. God said, kill them all. God said, none of them are good. And Saul said, well, now hold on a minute. I mean, these ones are pretty good. And Samuel asked him, why did you save those? And he said, well, I'm going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. I saved the best of the animals. And Saul said, oh, don't you see? They're unclean. They're bad animals. You're not the one that gets to decide that, okay? So this is all, all tying in together. The Jews aren't the ones who decide who gets to be saved. The Lord is. You're not the one who gets to decide what is clean and what is unclean. It's the Lord. And the Lord says, I've got all kinds of sheep, sheep you don't even know about. It's not just you. This is like, hey, listen, guys. I, I hate to break your bubble, but it's kind of my job. When you get to heaven and when you pop up out of that grave on the last day, you're going to be kind of surprised because there are going to be some Calvinists and some Presbyterians and some Evangelicals and some Roman Catholics woo, that are going to be in heaven with you. We had a discussion on the way here this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> See, so this is to say... If you can't speak German, you're not going to be in heaven. <laughs> there... Yeah, well, oof, that hits pretty close to home. <laughs> See, so there are going to be some people that maybe you didn't think ought to be in heaven. And among the most zealous of every denomination, there are those who really firmly believe. This is not an accusation. I'm just stating generally that there are some people, and I know some, not, I'm not including you, I do know some, 
some very, very, very zealous and faithful Christians who then also think we are the only ones who are right. We are the only ones who have the whole truth. We are the last bastion. Nobody else will be saved except for us. And it's a real, it's going to, I tell you, the last day is going to be a real bubble burster. And uh, that's okay, because that'll be the time when you're most ready to have your bubble burst. Right now, well, maybe you're not ready, but then you will be. Bruce. No, you won't. You, well, you can't, but, you, well, you can and you can't. You're not going to care, but you shouldn't care now. Because who do you, who do you, who should you want to be saved? Everyone, including Roman Catholics and Calvinists. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm just picking on them. But... I know. I mean, it's not like you're going to pop up out of the grave and, you know, pardon the language, but it's not like you're going to look at Jesus and say, well, those damn Catholics are going to get in heaven too? <laughs> it's like, what the, well, if they're in, to count me out, you know? It's like, that's not, that's not the way it's going to be. So Jesus has many sheep, and they're not all of the fold that you think. And in that particular context, it's not like, he's not saying, hey, it's not just going to be you Jews. I didn't come just to save you. I came to take away the sin of the world. Tu kasmu. Everything. Everything that has ever been created, I've come to redeem. Everything that's brought into existence. Everything that you know, and a whole lot that you don't know, I have come to redeem. And now you have to continue doing my work. Make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. Well, who am I supposed to baptize and teach? Everyone. Anyone who wants it. That's who you're supposed to baptize and teach. Are you sure? What about those not-so-nice people? Do it! That's your, that's your job. That's your order. Yes? I've been taken out of context here. Not uh, you. <laughs> I don't think anything has been said other than that there was a discussion. Yes. This is all Eighth Commandment. Because the Lutheran Church, in the Apostles' Creed, in the third article, we say, we believe in the Holy Christian Church. Yes. And if you go to the subheading here, it says, they use the, the Catholic Church. The whole Christian Church on earth yes. is what we confess. Yes. So the question is not... The question has to be, what does the church look like? What defines the church? And that's not something we can talk about today. But suffice it to say, look at something like the Athanasian Creed or the, look at any of the three ecumenical creeds. If you want to see what Christianity looks like, there it is. That's it. And there, there is this idea, if you've never read C.S. Lewis and you want to, read Mere Christianity. Because I wholly, wholeheartedly subscribe to mere Christianity and to the ideas that's, that Lewis talks about in that book. And I think they're really important. And what the main idea of the book is, is a concept called mere Christianity. Mere? M-E-R-E. M-E-R-E. Yeah. Mere Christianity. Um, I can write it up here if you want me to. 
since I can't spell it. Can't speak it. Hey, you know, speaking's hard. I got to get here early and practice all the readings so I don't end up trying to do a tongue twister out of the lectern. There. Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis. So his, the major argument of the book is this. You call yourselves Lutherans, right? Yes. The churches down the road have their own names for themselves. The Roman Catholics are the Roman Catholics. And we are divided. We, that we, are, we have unity in many things, but we are also divided. I cannot participate in the services of our ministerial alliance because I cannot share an altar and a pulpit with them. And that's just the way that it is. And I love the guys that, we, that I meet with every month. It's a great, very faithful group of men. But I can't share the pulpit or the lectern with them for, for many reasons. But, Do they understand that? Yes, yes. And if they don't, I have a really, really, really fun way to show them why, which we don't need to talk about today. <laughs> See, I've got to give you all these things so you keep coming back. Um, but... There is something greater that transcends all of your denominational borders. So one of the reasons why we're different than the evangelicals is on something like the real bodily presence. Not the real presence, the real bodily presence. That Jesus, that what is on your tongue is quite literally the, the very same thing that was hanging on the cross. The very same thing that a soldier put a spear through and that nails went through, that's the very thing that is put into your mouth that you eat. No symbol, nothing. Quite literally, it is flesh. And if anyone ever calls you a cannibal and says they're going to kill you because you're a cannibal, you say, all right, kill me, I am a cannibal, because that's what the early Christians did. So if we say, yes, it is, and they say, no, it isn't, there is a wall. And there are a few big walls that stop us from doing certain things in a liturgical setting, okay? But there is something that is greater than the walls that are built between the denominations, and that is mere Christianity. The very, 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 very most basic and most fundamental idea of Christianity, which is what? Jesus Christ is the Son of God who took on flesh and died for sinners. It's basically the Apostles' Creed, really. The God, there is one God, he's triune. The Son of God is the Word who became incarnate. He died. He rose again. The Holy Spirit creates and sustains the church at the end. So then you have this idea of, well, we can say that they're not faithful to history or to the Christian church because they don't believe that it's really the body and the blood. But at the end of the day, it isn't, our, it isn't us who judges whether or not they are raised to, um, raised to life with Christ in heaven on the last day. Because mere Christianity says that even despite our issues, there is a transcendent Christian faith. And that's the basic argument. I mean, he says it much better than I do, but it is really a good book. Really, really good. I would commend it to you. Now, any other questions? So Lewis was a Christian. 
Yeah, oh yeah, very faithful Christian. He was an, uh, he was an Anglican. So uh, Tolkien was Roman Catholic. Lewis was an Anglican. And G.K. Chesterton was an Anglican that converted to Catholicism. And actually, well, I don't, I don't need to say that. Because that's... Pastor Lemke uh, liked C.S. Lewis, but he always quoted uh, the screw tape letters. Screw tape letters are scary. You read them the first time and you laugh. And then you read them the second time and you don't laugh. And then you read them the third time and you go, oh my word, this is not a work of fiction and it is not a comedy. This is a commentary on what's going on in my life right now. Because you see the working of the devil and how he takes every little thing around you and twists it to his way to try and get you to think a different way. And so it's funny when you read it the first time because you go, ha, look at this comedic take on the devil. And then the second time you read it, it's not funny anymore because you start to take it seriously for what it is. And the third time you read it, you realize, oh, it's about me. Whoops. And then it's depressing and scary. And it gives you a sort of sense of clarity when you look at all the things that pop up. Like uh, the little voice that pops up in your head that says, oh, I'm really tired, maybe after supper tonight, we won't do family devotions. We'll just go to bed early. And then you think that that's a good idea, and then you do it. And then you read the screw tape letters, and you beat yourself upside the head because you realize, oh, my word, I'm just playing right into this. It's, it's a, it is a frightening work, really. Or The Great Divorce, that's another really good one. But anyway, read C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is very good. He was a very devout Christian very devout Anglican. He never called himself a theologian, He's, uh, and he never aspired to be a theologian. He said, I'm a philosopher, and I'm a classicist. I'm not a theologian. And he was very humble in his writings. He said things like, um, I'm no priest, and I'm no theologian, so maybe what I write is wrong, which was very humble because it wasn't wrong. Okay, now, yes. I may be showing my age, but didn't we used to the Holy Catholic Church? The old language of the creed did, yes. And uh, we became so afraid of Catholics that we took the word Catholic out, even though it's a completely different word. The red hymnal. Yeah, the red hymnal. See, but now here's the funny thing, though. The Latin creed, or, or maybe it was the German creed in Reformation-era Germany, um, actually said Christian, not Catholic. So there, are, there is some argument to be made that it, it, there is historic Lutheran precedence or, or historic precedence for the word Christian instead of Catholic, although even the Catholic Church said Christian because that was the way the creed was worded in that time, in that region. But I think Catholic is better because it gives you a better understanding. You know, I have to say, I think it's kind of sad that, we've, that we changed the word. And I can, you know, you can hear it in your head that a committee that gets together and says, well, we don't want to confuse people and we don't want it to, them to think, you know, because we're the Lutheran Church, so we don't want people to think that it's not the Lutheran Church, that it's the Catholic Church instead. There's problem number one, is that people don't, you're not taught anymore. Um, and we just, you know, so many pastors think that their laity are stupid. They think that you're a bunch of idiots. They're, oh, well, they're never going to understand if we say Catholic, so we better change the language. There was a pastor that I know who changed the words of the proper preface. He said, meat isn't a word that we use anymore, so we shouldn't say meat in the liturgy because nobody knows what it is. We'll just change it to good. And I said, why don't you just teach people what it means? Well, then I have to teach, and that's hard work. Nobody told you that your job is going to be easy, pastor. Good grief, if you want to be a pastor and live a lazy life, 
you might want to reconsider. This is not an easy job, and teaching that kind of stuff is not easy. But you don't change it. You don't think your people are stupid. I mean, I'm not going to present to you an academic paper or anything, and I'm not going to go through some contexts in the Greek language class with you, but you also don't need to go through something like that. That's the kind of stuff I do because I think it's fun. I don't know that any of you would think that that was as fun as I do because I'm kind of a nerd. And if any of you do think that that's kind of fun, well, tell me and I'll do something with you. But, you know, generally speaking, I'm not going to come here on Sunday morning and say, now take out your Greek New Testaments and we're going to talk about Byzantine primacy. How does that sound? Uh, oof, that's a great way to make sure nobody comes on Sunday morning, <laughs> right? So, but I also don't think you're stupid. Uh, and I also don't think just because you live out on the farm that you're a bunch of country bumpkin hicks, okay? So when you come here, I'm gonna treat you like a human being of reasonable intelligence, and when I write your handouts for you, I'm gonna put footnotes in them, and I'm gonna use the language that I kind of would ordinarily use, because I don't think you're dumb. And if there's a problem with the liturgy and something that you don't understand, then tell me that you don't understand it, and I will teach you about it. Because I don't think you're dumb, and I'm not gonna treat you as if you're dumb. Well, you're welcome. That, always, that really just bugs me. Oh, I can't do this. I remember in a homiletics class once, I said, well, you can't use words like diadem in a sermon because nobody knows what a diadem is, so you need to use simple language. I thought, it's in the hymn. Cast their diadems of gold. Like, well, well, we don't know what that is. Like, well, maybe I ought to get you a new Webster's American Dictionary for Christmas then. You can look at, that's what my mom used to do. She said, well, I don't, how do you spell this word or what does this word mean? And she, her response was always the same. Look it up. Here's the dictionary. And there were some days I just wanted to know how to spell a word. And I remember thinking, how am I supposed to look it up if I don't know how it's spelled? It was just sounded out. Ooh, that works real well in the English language, doesn't it? Uh, anyway, we're, we're so far off track. Uh, hey, it's good to be home. <laughs> I love this. See? Yeah, that's the one. The royal diadem. Yeah. He's just like, look, I'm going to preach my sermons the way that I'm going to preach my sermons, and I'm going to use the language. And sometimes that means you're, that you're going to have to stop and think for a minute and go, oh, hmm, wait a minute, what's that? Oh, oh, okay. And I will often leave just brief little pauses when I know that there's going to be something that I'm dropping that's really big on you that I want you to take a quick second and rehash in your head. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to treat you like you're a bunch of morons. I'm not going to change how I talk uh, as if you're morons. I'm not going to change how we look at scripture or how we look at the Bible, and I'm not going to do it for the kids either, because honestly, if you really want to compare intelligence, the kids are smarter than you are. Uh, if you want to learn stuff about the church, look at the kids, because the kids will teach you better than I will. They learn faster, they learn better, they know way more. And uh, I am consistently impressed every time I teach them by the kinds of stuff that they retain and the kinds of stuff that they know. Don't sell the kids short. Even the ones that you don't think are listening, they are. <clears throat> they are, which is also why you have to be careful what you say around the house. If you believe that you should be careful what you say around the house, then you also have to believe that they're listening in church and learning even when you don't think that they are. 
Because if they can repeat a four-letter word when you didn't think they heard it, they'll learn something from a sermon or a hymn or a reading or looking at a stained glass window, even if you don't think they're paying attention. Yes. Uh, yes. Our daughter, bless her little heart, was walking around the house a couple weeks ago saying a word that begins with F and rhymes with truck. And I looked at Carol and I said, Wait, did you say that? What does she know? I know. What does she know that word? And we just walking around saying that. We had no idea what she was saying until she sat down on the couch and pulled out brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? And she turned to the page and said, and pointed at the green frog. And we realized, oh, she's saying frog, but it sure doesn't sound like frog. If you want to laugh, she's, she's not here for Bible class because she's potty training. She, she decided she was going to do it herself and just started. And Carolyn didn't want to mess with the routine this morning. So she'll be here in church. But uh, <laughs> if you want a good laugh on the way out of church, just don't, don't do it in the sanctuary. Do it on the narthex. Ask her to say frog. <laughs> Enough people already know how she says it. <laughs> So we do it just for laughs now, just not in mixed company. <laughs> My grandma thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Uh, okay, we've got like 15 minutes left. So I want to hit our handout on this death and dying class again because next week is a hymn study. <laughs> like, see, we're never going to get through it. I write this, and this is only part one. I've got like four more parts planned. I ordered new books so I can read and do more studying for you. And, um, oh, we're going to be on this forever. <laughs> so, we just remember, we're considering death. A Christian considers death um, really daily. Memento mori, um, consider the fact that you are mortal, that you're going to die. Death's going to come for you. You can never hide from it. And you know what? That's okay. Be content with the fact that death will come. The worst thing that you can do as a Christian is be so utterly, inconsolably afraid to die that your own life then becomes an idol. That's a really tough issue to work through um, as a pastor, trying to pull somebody back off the ledge of, Death is the most frightening thing in the world. Because it really isn't. I can think of 10 things off the top of my head right now that are a lot more frightening than death. So it's okay. It's okay to be a little worried about death. I think it's natural. Excuse me. And, and everybody is to a degree because uh, you know what's going to happen or at least you trust in what you've heard is going to happen, but you don't concretely know. There's been no proof. Like I'm gonna, I tell you a bunch of things about death and dying and what's going to happen and blah, 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 blah. But I've never died and come back from the grave and I haven't met anybody who has. So where's the proof? So at the back of your mind, there's always this little bit of fear about what if I was wrong? What if pastor was wrong? I don't really know. I haven't seen what happens. 
How do I know that it is what it is? And what if it isn't? It's so unknown still. So that kind of worry can be dealt with. But inconsolable fear where life and health and not dying has become your God and your ultimate goal, that's a whole lot harder of a thing. So just, it's okay to think about death. It's okay to talk about death. Remember one of the reasons people get so afraid about death, even in the church, is because no one talks about it. Because we're, we're in this age where everything has to be sugar-coated. We can't talk about money, we've got to sugarcoat it. We can't talk about sex, we've got to sugarcoat it. Can't talk about politics, got to sugarcoat it. Who heaven knows, we've got we to gotta, we gotta enjoy our time with grandma for Thanksgiving. Don't talk about politics. Uh, we can't talk about death because everybody's got to get along. You know, we don't want life to be uncomfortable. We want everything sugar-coated so we never have to think about any of that. Well, then guess what? If you never think about it, it's going to come find you. And when it finds you, you're not ready because you never thought about it. You never talked about it. You weren't open about it. And then you're going to be afraid of it because you have no idea what's coming. So talk about it. Talk about money. Talk about sex. Talk about politics if you want. Just not in Bible class. Talk about, talk about um, death and teach your kids about it too. If you still have young kids, it's okay to talk about death with young kids. It's okay. And it's okay for kids to be kind of worried about it and not really understand it. That's okay. Take your kids to funerals. This maybe goes against you know, common sense. I know that I've talked with enough funeral home directors to kind of know what most of them would say. And I, I, a lot of them really, are, well, you know, kids don't need to, kids don't need to look in the casket. Kids don't need to see the, kids don't need to go to a funeral. Well, no, they absolutely do. <laughs> they absolutely do. I remember back in, in, uh, in uh, at the seminary, I was in charge of the youth program there that they do during the summer called Christ Academy. Two weeks on campus for high school boys predominantly those who are interested in the ministry. And then, you know, seminary professors teach special classes, and uh, then they, are, they spend their days in classes with the, with the professors, in chapel with the seminarians, worshiping three times a day, every day, and then doing their own activities and stuff. And I was the director. And uh, there was a pastor who worked at the seminary. He worked in one of the business offices, uh, but he still worked there, and he was still a pastor. And he died suddenly of a heart attack, and they had a funeral for him. And if you've never been to the funeral of a pastor, you should go whenever you have the opportunity. It's sort of like an ordination. Anytime you have the opportunity to go to an ordination, do it. Anytime you can go to a pastor's funeral, do it. It's like nothing that you've ever seen before. And there is singing like you have never heard before. It'll blow the roof off because all these pastors get together and just have no voice by the end of it. But. Um, so they had a funeral right there in Kramer Chapel. It was packed, standing room only. And that chapel is massive, packed. Pastors from all over came because you lose a brother and they come. Um, and the boys, we had them sing because one of the classes they do is music and then they go and they sing on Sundays in different churches. So the boys, um, they worked on a hymn and they worked on a little introit type piece. And then they sang actually for, the, for that funeral. And then we changed the entire day's schedule so that we could talk about death with these high school boys because for, uh, for the most part, there were only a few who had ever even been to a funeral before. 
high, these high school boys. And you know, if you haven't had a death in the family and you're, all, and you're in high school, God bless you, that's great. But um, uh, there are a lot of parents who try to shield their kids from death. What's gonna happen when you're gone? Who's gonna shield them from death then? You, you can't shield them from death, it's going to come. Talk to them about death, bring them to a funeral, explain to them. My family is also really big on lowering the, standing at the graveside while the casket is lowered. I think that that's a really important thing personally because it always makes me feel bad to drive away and see the casket just sitting there. Because to me, I feel like they're being left behind. And there is a certain closure when the casket goes into the earth and everyone takes a handful of earth and sprinkles it onto the casket before they leave. That to me is something that's final and I can leave after I know that whoever I've loved and lost is in the ground and I have sprinkled the earth there, that's final. But them just sitting up, I know it's not the end yet. And I know for a fact that most of the funeral home directors here that's really a, a rare thing. If somebody wants to be there as it's lowered, they say, oh, no, 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 you don't need to see that. No, but you do. You do. Of course, <laughs> oof, we, I was at one funeral, and the straps got stuck. So then in front of the whole family, they start going, <laughs> and the funeral home director had to run to the work and say, maybe stop doing that, because the, you know, the kids are there. Like, <laughs> it's just like, you know, so... Maybe that's not the kind of thing you want to see, but, the, but having it you know, lowered down there and this is it. They're in the earth now. I, th I think that's important. I think, you know, I w at that same funeral, actually, the kids, the pastor's kids, and then his nephews, who are also the sons of pastors, he, they were all lined up there and he said, now here you take some of this dirt and you go and you can put it on, you know, drop it into the casket. And all these little boys, okay. Why are we doing this? Well, because blah, blah, blah. See, and then they learn. Death is a foreigner in this world, but it is a foreigner that is encountered regularly. So you have to live in this tension where you know that death is foreign and it doesn't belong, but you also see it all the time. So you have to be comfortable enough with death to, to see it, but also be not comfortable enough with it that you never become numb to it. But you have to, I mean, you have to... Know about it. Talk to your kids about it. Teach them about it. I've talked about this book before, but the hymn 708, Lord Thee I Love With All My Heart, one of my most favorite hymns. I can never sing it without crying, especially the last stanza, because I've sung it at too many bedsides. And every time I sing it, I remember the people that I love that aren't with us anymore. And um, that hymn was put into a, an illustrated book by a company called Gloria, like Gloria, but with a K. And the whole book is about dying. It follows the story of a little girl who uh, gets cancer and then dies. That's the story of the book. And it follows the text of the hymn uh, so that you can teach your kids through our hymnody about what we think about death. That it doesn't have to be something that's frightening because there's always the victory of Christ. That stuff's really important. And we contemplate it. There's a reason why on Ash Wednesday I say, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Because to dust you're going to return. Someday your body's going to be swallowed up by the earth. And that's the way of this world. But it isn't the end. And that's important. So, Here's the big question, and we'll have to continue this in two weeks. What is death?
We're going to talk about death, but we have to be able to define what it is first. Uh, and there are a few specific ways that we would define that in the church. Um, there's what we would call temporal death. So if we have a funeral for you, that's because you've had a temporal death. Uh, your, 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 your body has died. But then there's also um, spiritual death, which you can still be alive and walking around and have died spiritually. In fact, you were spiritually dead when you were born. Come to the catechumenate, you'll learn that. We have a lot of fun, too. Um, but then there's a third type, and I don't really, I don't have it on the handout here, but there's a third uh, type of death, and I don't have it here because we'll talk about it later, and that's called what we would say eter the eternal death. So you can be spiritually dead, which is not the same as being eternally dead. You can be temporally dead, which is also not the same thing as being eternally dead. So, but eternally dead, we don't, we're not going to talk about that till we get into the module on hell and heaven and what all that is. But so this is just purely on death, what happens when you die, what the Christian perspective is. So temporal death is the thing we talk about first. Then temporal death is what we'd say, like, when grandma dies, that's temporal death. And that's the release of the soul from the body, or the separation of the soul and the body. And we'll talk more about that. There are some scripture passages that we'll look at. But that doesn't, what that doesn't mean is that the body is just a vessel. So what I hate to hear at visitations or funerals is when people go, into, oh, well, it's okay. The body was just a vessel. The vessel's dead now, but the spirit's still, oh, you're just, it's not, what am I? Just a, like, I'm just a pot. Well, fill me up with my spirit, Lord, and then when you're ready to just uh, like, uncork, the, uncork it and let the spirit out, because you know I don't really, the body doesn't matter. Or like, you know, in some, ugh, there's this idea that, well, the body doesn't matter. Do, you know, the body doesn't matter. When the body's dead, it's dead. It doesn't matter at all, because, you know, what really matters is being in heaven. He's just like, do you even know what you're saying? I mean, how were you created? Why do you have a body at all? Oh, my body doesn't matter. Oh, the Lord just thought he'd give it to me for laughs. Hey, well, let's see how, how long can you live if I give you a body. <laughs> That'll be really fun. Then don't worry. At the end, I'll just take you right back up here. It'll be fun. What kind of a capricious, idiotic God is that? Well, I'll just give you a body for laughs. Flesh and blood. Like, no, flesh and blood matters. Hey, how do you know it matters? Yes! I was going to say, there are two right answers, but one is more right than the other. And that's the one that's more right than the other. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, because Jesus takes on flesh and blood. How do you know that your flesh and blood is important? Because Jesus is born. Because Jesus dies in the flesh. Because Jesus is coming back in the flesh. Jesus is going to come down from heaven. It's not going to be like some big shining light with a voice. Like, hey, it's me, Jesus. He's going to come down and you're going to look at him and you're going to know him and you're going to see him. You're going to be, hey, you're going to be able to give Jesus a high five and a hug and, and kiss him on the lips if you want. But you're going to be able to be like Thomas. Put your, put your hands in that side because Jesus is flesh and blood. Because Jesus didn't take on, he didn't, you know, come down as a spirit. He came down in flesh and in blood because your flesh and blood matters. There's this, it's Gnosticism is what it is, this idea that, well, the flesh doesn't matter and everything in the world is bad and what we really need to shoot for is this 
higher transcendency of our spirit. Sounds a lot like modern uh, uh, paganism, doesn't it? New Age philosophy and paganism. We're going to transcend all of this because the spirit is what matters. My mind is what matters. My body doesn't matter at all. In fact, there's a song. I, I hate this song so much. There's a song by Lady Gaga. <laughs> and it goes, do what you want with my body. Just don't touch my mind. And it's like, no, that's not the way this works. Your mind and your body are not some, they're two separate things. Your spirit and your body are not something residing in a vessel that, well, we can break the vessel and then everything is okay because as long as the spirit's there. No, they're like this. They're like this. They're together. Don't talk about your body like it doesn't matter. That body that you're in right now is the same body you're going to have at the resurrection. I say that again and again and again and again. That's why cremation is really not the preferred uh, funeral means for Christians because the confession of everything we do is that this body matters and this is the very body that's going to pop up out of the grave. So we bury the body. And, uh, and we're running out of time. But then, you know, any pastor worth his salt is going to be a prima donna at the graveside about making sure, no, I have to stand here and, that, and it needs to face this way because it has to face, the body needs to face east. And if they say, well, we don't have it lined up that way, then you say, well, you're going to. <laughs> Which... I have done. Once. Only ever once. Yes? So you said there were two right answers. The first right answer was that Jesus uh, was a living, breathing man. Yes. The other not so good is that God created us. Right? Yes. And I don't mean to say that it's not so good. It is a correct answer and it is good. It's just that if you want to answer the question, how do I know my flesh matters, you can say, because God made my flesh, and in the beginning, God created man with flesh. So that's, yes, okay, that's fine. But Jesus always wins in the hierarchy of good arguments. So if you say, because Jesus took on flesh, then you say, well, that's then. So those are the two big things. Because God made man with flesh, and God created you with flesh, but Jesus took on your flesh too. Uh, you are something unique. We'll talk more about you Boy, this is a rarity, right? We're going to talk about you, actually. I say it's never about you, but next time we get together, it is about you. Oh, shame on me. Right? Okay. But you, because you matter, your construction, how you are created, what you are, what are your constituent parts, what are you made of, all of that matters and all of that factors into death. Okay? We got to go. I'll see you at the altar.